30, we're in the midst of the, uh, the fourth of the six woes that we're going to be seeing in this section. It starts out in verse 1, woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel, but not of me, and who devise plans, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin who walk to go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame and trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. For his princes were at Zoan and his ambassadors came from Hanes. And they were all ashamed of a people who could not benefit them or be a help or benefit, but a shame and also a reproach. The burden against the beasts of the south through a land of trouble and anguish from which came the lioness and the lion, the viper and the fiery flying serpent. They will carry their riches on the back of young donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people who shall not profit. For the Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore, I have called her Rahab Hem Shebeth. And so, Father, Today, as we read uh, these chapters and this part of Isaiah that we probably have never read in our lives or even heard a sermon about, as we come to the middle of Isaiah where we, we come to a section where a lot of times we just either skip over or just quickly read through to get our check for the day, Lord, please forgive us. Help us to study this tonight. Help us to understand it. Help us to apply it. Uh, to our lives, knowing that it is relevant as it was 2,700 years ago when it was written. Help us to understand uh, these chapters. Uh, help us to be not only willing, but able to be able to apply these things to our lives now. Lord, I thank you for these, my friends and my family, those that are here, those that are online, those that are out in the quad working. I ask that you would bless them tonight. Open up our hearts, soften our minds, help us to be able to understand your word. Lord, we lift up to your pastors. We thank you so much for Pastor Mike Ostheimer and Pastor Mike Cosper and Pastor Mike Butler and Pastor Mike Atkinson. I ask that you'd give them clear vision uh, for our church. Bless them in their ministries. I ask that you give our elders, Ron and Larry, a direction for our church that you would use us for your glory corporately as a church, that you would unite us and help us to grow closer to you. We thank you so much for the privilege that we have to come to an open building with air conditioning, and we have the privilege of being able to open up your word in the middle of the week and read it for ourselves. Thank you so much for being here tonight with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. We're going through a chronological study of the scriptures starting in Genesis some nine years ago. We are now in the middle of the Bible, in the middle of Isaiah. And if you've ever looked just at a, you know, an outline of the book of Isaiah, you know that it's 66 chapters long. And it's divided into two sections. The first 39 of the chapters that we're in right now 
are about the nation of Israel and Judah and the surrounding nations and judgment is coming. We learned about in chapter 6, the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. His brilliance. And then in the very next chapter, we find out that he's going to come incarnate to this earth as a little babe in a manger. In chapter 9, we get the privilege of reading the Christmas story, and then later on, we're going to learn the Easter story in chapter 53. The last 27 chapters are going to be a reference to the New Testament. In fact, if you look at the book of Isaiah, it's like a microcosm of the Bible itself. You see, what is the Bible divided up as? Old Testament, 39 books, right? And the New Testament, how many books are in the New Testament? 27. A total of how many books? 66. This book of Isaiah that we're getting to read, literally in chapters 30, 31, 32, and 33 are the major prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. We get the privilege of seeing not only how God is using the prophet Isaiah to speak to the people in his time, but also transcend time and speak to us now. Even more relevant than the latest blog the one that rolled across your screen this morning or flashed on your phone, or maybe if you're, you know, have a newspaper delivered to your house, I know that that's outdated, but the privilege of understanding that this is more relevant, even in these middle chapters that many of us have never even opened to the stuck pages of your Bible or the parts that many times we just skip over. We're in the fourth of the six woes. And of course, if you remember from last week, the first three of the woes was against pride, which is the theme of Isaiah. Everything is against pride, starting with Satan himself, the very first sin that happened in the entire universe, pride itself. And God is going to bring down the pride, first of all, of his own people, Israel and Judah, and then also the surrounding nations as well. And then in chapter 29, we learn the woe to the religion, the religiosity that infected Israel and Judah. And then, of course, last week we learned about the third of the woes, which was the secret sins, all those things that they did in their closets, all those things that they did after coming home from temple worship on the Sabbath and then going and having these secret sins that they treasured for themselves. And tonight, we learn about the political leaders. Oh, it's so relevant today. You can see this just literally oozing in these chapters. The political leaders, woe to those that are in charge of the policies of the day. And it starts with the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel, but not of me, capital M-E. Rather than turning to God for the counsel, who are they now turning to? Egypt. 
their allies, the surrounding nations. We need to have a coalition of nations that we can come together and get counsel from. This is the nation of Israel returning to Egypt. By the way, all the way back in Exodus, what were they trying to do? As Exodus says, exit from Egypt. Why did they want to leave Egypt in the first place? Because they were slaves. Can you imagine that? Reading this section from Isaiah, hearing these words and saying, you're just going back to slavery. You're just being put into bondage again from the nation that God freed you from. Just like we sang from Jude itself, reminding the people, even in the second to the last book of the Bible, reminding them, don't go back to Egypt. Don't go back to slavery. Don't go back to bondage. It's easy to say from up here. It's easy to agree with it from there, sitting in your seats. But as soon as you leave this building, is it hard to do? Oh, yeah. Because what's going to happen immediately? You're going to be tempted to go back into bondage. We're all going to be tempted to compromise, to be complacent, as we learn. Psalms chapter 91, verse 1, it says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. It's in direct contrast to the last phrase of verse 2. Where are they going back to? What does verse 2, the last phrase, say? And to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Trading the shadow of the loving God for the shadow of a nation that wants to return you to bondage itself. That in every single way will turn their back upon you if it doesn't benefit them. Remember, this is a time when Assyria is literally conquering the world one nation at a time. In 722 BC, they capture the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes in the north, and they have their eyes set on Judah, on Jerusalem now. In fact, later on in this section, we're going to find out that Assyria is literally on the doorsteps of Jerusalem itself, surrounding the nation. And the Israelites are trying to reach allies, whether to the south in Egypt or to the north in Syria, different from Assyria. And they're trying to gain all these allies rather than trusting in whom? God himself. Verse 3, it says, therefore the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame. And trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. For his princes were at Zoan, and his ambassadors came to Hanes. This is not the underwear. This is a uh, city about 50 miles south of Cairo, okay? Uh, you, you understand the picture here, and, and, and every time we see, you know, cities in, in the Bible, it's always kind of hard to gauge where they're at, and it's the same way if someone were to come, you know, 
say from Southern California, they come to Kern County and you talk about Tachapi or Mojave or, or Green Acres or Oildale or all these places that we have and that we know personally ourselves, but a person outside of our county even would never know those places. And this is the same thing when we read cities in the scriptures, that they understand these cities. These were the capitals. These were the places of political power within, Israel, or within Egypt itself, that they would have to send their ambassadors from Jerusalem to the southern nation of Egypt just across the Red Sea, going to ply some sort of a treaty or an alliance with them. And what is God saying through the prophet Isaiah? It's going to be your shame. They're not going to support you. They're just going to humiliate you. In fact, in verse 5, it says, They were all ashamed of a people who could not benefit them or be a help or a benefit, but a shame and also a reproach. The alliance is going to fail. And they're going to hang their heads in shame because it will literally fall apart. That reed will pierce their hand. The thing that they would make paper from and that grew wild out in the rivers of the Nile itself, the reeds would pierce the hands of Israel because it was a frail, fragile alliance. Verse 6 the burden against the beasts of the south, through a land of trouble and anguish from which came the lioness and the lion, the viper and the fiery flying serpent. They will carry their riches on the back of young donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people who shall not profit. You see, back in those days, they didn't just have electronic money transfers. What did they have to do in order to make sure that the alliance was secure? They'd have to carry all these treasures on beasts of burden. These animals that were laden down with the gold and the jewels and all the things that they were going to entice Egypt with. And what is God saying? You're going to be the one that's burdened. You're going to be the one that is enslaved in this relationship. For the Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore, I have called her this long name, Rahab Hem Shabbat. You see, literally, it means Rahab sits idle. And it's probably in your Bibles. There's probably a little one next to the word. And you have to kind of look it up. In, in the, or in your electronic version, you can just click on it and it'll tell you the definition. But literally, it means that the arrogant Rahab himself, the god of the Egyptians, or one of the gods of the Egyptians, this arrogant dragon literally sits idle. He has all this power, but when you ask him to do something for you, he doesn't come through. He's just sitting on his rear end. Rahab is just sitting there idle. You see, it was a dragon from pagan mythology who was pictured as resisting creation itself. Both the Rahab and the Leviathan that we'll read about in the book of Job are symbolic of the forces of evil in the universe that God will destroy. You see, our God is active. Our God does miracles. Our God steps in and saves. What is the God of the Egyptians doing? 
as Isaiah is perfectly picturing here, by the way, just sitting out around on his rear end, doing nothing. This big, huge honking God that, that, you know, supposedly has lots of strength. What is he doing? Sitting around doing nothing. Verse 8, now go write it down or write it before them on a tablet. Note it on a scroll that it may be for time to come forever and ever that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who do not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things. A prophesy deceits. What do they want to hear from their prophets? What do they want to hear from their preachers? What do they want to hear from their pastors? Something that's going to tickle their ears. Something that will soothe them, smooth their anger, make sure that they are complacent, lull them to sleep. They don't want to be challenged from the pulpit. They don't want to be in every single way brought to a remembrance that they need to repent of their sins rather than being content in their sins. It's a call to wake up. And I'm thankful that we go to a church where our pastors make sure that we are uncomfortable in our sin. You see, we want a pastor, we should want a pastor or a church that doesn't make us feel comfortable. Because what happens if we don't change, if we don't repent of our sins? We sit there and we walk out the door, nothing happened. You just came to a, a sermon that just, you know, soothed you back to sleep, made you comfortable. But you know those sermons, whether on Sundays or Monday nights or Wednesday mornings or Wednesday nights or Fridays throughout the week where you hear the word of God and it makes you squirm a little bit. Who's doing that to your heart? Who's doing that to your soul? It's the Holy Spirit speaking through the word of God. Challenging you. Bringing you to a place where you must acknowledge your position before God. In fact, in verse 11, that's exactly what it says. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Because the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, it says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. We are blessed to have technology. Thank God for technology, especially in 2021. People that weren't able to come to church, they were able to hear the word of God. I just ran into a couple today. She's going through chemotherapy. He used to come to the Wednesday morning and because of, you know, that not only uh, all the things that are going on with COVID and, and just wanting to protect his wife, he stayed home, he and his wife, but they yet still can watch online. Thank God for that. But you know what? There's also a harm in that as well because there's so much out there. And what are the things that we want to listen to? 
It's the things that make our ears itch, as it says here. It's the things that, you know, they, they you know, preach a gospel that is, um, yeah, comfortable. They don't want to upset anyone because then they might leave and then they can go somewhere else. You see, it is prevalent today, especially in, you know, our city itself. We are blessed with many, many churches. But people just hop from church to church and they never settle. Or, or someone offends them in that church and then what do they do? They go to a different church. And you see, every church, every church has problems. You know why? Because every church is made up of people. And every church has people that are sinners in it. Yes, they're saved. But people cause problems. And thank God that we have pastors that are willing to stand up and preach the word of God. In verse 12 of chapter 30 of Isaiah, it says, Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perversity and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach ready to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. What are you doing going back to Egypt to slavery and bondage? When God has set you free, what is your Egypt today? I know it's not the nation of Egypt, but what is your Egypt? What is enslaving you today? Addictions are on the rise. People are, you know, not only suffering from depression in record numbers because of isolation, but the understanding is that fellowship is so important. And God is calling us to be in his shadow rather than the shadow of something that's going to bring you bondage. Something that's going to take you back to Egypt itself. You see this illustration in verse 13 of a dam. We live in Kern County. We live in Bakersfield. Lake Isabella is just right up the, you know, the, the, the canyon there. And, and anyone that lives close to there flood insurance is a must in many ways. Why? Because what can happen when that dam breaks? And thank God that they're, you know, fixing it and all those kind of things. But what were to happen if an earthquake were to come and that dam would break? All that water would come rushing down the canyon and flood the valley. You see, in this section here, we see this bulge in the breach, this bulge in the dam, this bulge in the wall. It's about ready to break. In fact, in verse 14, it says, And he shall break it like the breaking of a potter's vessel, which is broken in pieces. He shall not spare. So there shall not be found among its fragrance a shard to take fire from the hearth or to take water from the cistern, it would break just like a clay pot. Fragile, break easily, shatter, unable to hold anything ever again. Verse 15, for thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel. Every single one of these sections, by the way, starts with this title of God. Who is he reminding the people of Israel that he is? 
their God, the Holy One of whom? Israel itself. Reminding them that he is a personal God to them. He is the one that brought them out of Egypt. He is the one that took them to the promised land. He is the one that moved them safely to a, a place where they could conquer the nations that were in their land. And God was the one that brought about the miracles in the wilderness. The Holy One of Israel protecting them. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. But you would not, and you said, no, for we will flee on horses. Therefore, you shall flee, and we will ride on swift horses. Therefore, those who pursue you shall be swift. Rather than resting in the promises and the strength of God, what are they looking for in this alliance with Egypt? horses not to run toward the enemy but to run away from the enemy and what is god saying in these passages the assyrians they're going to have faster horses than you even if you get them from egypt they're going to have more technology than you will they will outrun you and they will destroy you they will take you into slavery if you trust in egypt and their technology you will be destroyed. You will be conquered rather than trusting in whom? The Holy One of Israel, the one that is able to save them and give them strength. Verse 17, 1,000 shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall flee till you are left as a pole on top of a mountain, as a banner on a hill. You say, this isn't the way it was supposed to be. In fact, if you remember from the book of Joshua, what was it supposed to look like? How many Israelites were supposed to chase away the enemy? In Joshua chapter 23, verse 10, it says, one man of you shall chase a thousand. One Israelite can make a thousand enemies flee. For the Lord your God is he who fights for you as he promised. It's that Gideon with the 300 men that crush those pots and yell for the Lord. And what happens to the myriad of the Midianites? They scatter and run away. But what is happening instead here? One of the enemy is chasing a thousand Israelites. Five enemies are able to put the Israelite army to shame and run away. What happens when we ally with the wrong nation? What happens when we ally with the wrong people? Our confidence is shattered. But when we have confidence in the Holy One, when we have confidence in the One who gives us strength, what can we do? And it is miraculous. It is overwhelming. We too can have this strength as well. Therefore the Lord will wait, verse 18, that He may be gracious to you, and therefore He will be exalted, that He may have mercy on you, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. 
rather than relying upon the horses of Egypt that'll bring you swiftly to your destruction. What is Isaiah saying? Wait on the Lord. Be patient. He'll bring about an even greater victory. He'll bring about a miracle in the midst of the battle. Verse 19, for the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious to you in the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore, but your eyes will see your teachers. Your eyes shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right hand or when you turn to the left, you will also defile the covering of your images of silver and the ornament of your molded images of gold. You will throw them away as an unclean thing and you will say to them, get away. All those idols that they treasured will now be cast off when they put their eyes on the Holy One of Israel. And by the way, these are valuable things. This is silver and gold. These are things that they had crafted and put on their mantles and they would worship. These were, whether the household idols or, or the idols of, a, a, you know, maybe a several households that they would, you know, uh, conglomerate their money and, and bring about this, you know, nice, pretty idol. What are they going to do with that valuable thing? They're going to throw it away. Why? Because God is more valuable. You may say, well, I don't got anything like that in my house. We hold them in our hands now. It's the things that we put more time in with than God himself. The one who can give us strength. Rather than showing us our, uh, you know, frailties, our, our, you know, the things that we don't like about ourselves. All those things that we try to gloss over or make look better all the filters that we have who is the one that shows us that we are perfect in jesus christ who is the one that shows us that we can be better in him who is the one that shows us that we can be like jesus christ himself the one who makes us righteous who takes away our sin Thank God that he gave his son for us. Verse 23, then he will give the rain for your seed with which you sow the ground, the bread of the increase of the earth. It will be fat and plentiful in that day. Your cattle will feed on large pastures. Likewise, the oxen and the young donkeys that work the ground will eat cured fodder, which has been winnowed with the shovel and the fan that will be on every high hill and on every high mountain and every high hill, rivers and streams of water in the day of the great slaughter when the towns fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days. In that day, the Lord binds up the bruise of his people and heals the stroke of their wounds. Who is it that brings healing in his wings? Who, who is it that brings about nourishment for the people? It's God himself the Holy One of Israel. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and his heavy burden is heavy. 
His lips are full of indignation and his tongue like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream which reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of futility. And there shall be a bridle in the jaws of the people causing them to err. If God is on our side, we can fear nothing. Who is the one that defends the holiness of Israel? Who is the one that stands up for his name as the God of Israel? The I am, that is, I am. Who is directing the nations? You see, it's God. It's his story. It's history. We see it throughout the Old Testament. We see it working in the New Testament. His story, a microcosm in the book of Isaiah, 66 chapters divided into two sections, 39 chapters and then 27 chapters. And right here in the midst, in this section that very seldom we ever read or probably have never even heard in our lives, what is God saying? Wake up. Trust in me. Don't be in bondage to your Egypt. What does God give you? Verse 29, you shall have a song. As in the night when a holy festival is kept and the gladness of heart is when one goes with a flute to come to the mountain of the Lord, to the mighty one of Israel. The Lord will cause his glorious voice to be heard and show the descent of his arm with the indignation of his anger and the flame of a devouring fire with scattering tempest and hailstones. What did God do, by the way, in the book of Exodus to the nation of Egypt? He brought plagues. In fact, a lot of these same things, we see this exact thing happening at this time. The hailstones that fell upon Egypt itself. What did they do when they crossed the Red Sea? Miriam, the older sister of Moses, she takes up that tambourine and there's a whole chapter of singing right after the Red Sea crossing. The nation of Israel, they break out in song. What is God saying? Remember those times. Sing a song. Bring forth the mighty one of Israel. The Lord will cause his glorious voice to be heard and show the descent of his arms with the indignation of his anger and the flame of a devouring fire with scattering tempest and hailstones for through the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be beat down as he struck strikes with a rod. And in every place where the staff of punishment passes, which the Lord lays on him, it will be with tambourines and harps and in battles of brandishing, he will fight with it. Again, alluding back to the Red Sea crossing. When God stood up for the nation of Israel itself, can he do the same thing to Assyria? Yes. Yes, he can. In fact, we will see that later on in the latter end of the 30s here. Verse 33, for Tophet was established of old. Yes, for the king it is prepared. 
He has made it deep and large, a pyre of fire with much wood. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of brimstone, kindles it. This word tophet literally means the place of burning. It was a place where uh, the people of Israel would take their children to be sacrificed. It was a smoldering heap of coals. Whether it was the Baals or the Ashtoreths or the Moloch's, the, the gods that required a sacrifice of blood, not of an animal, but of a child. In promise, a vain promise of fertility or food or a good harvest. What is God going to say? Where Israel would offer their children as a sacrifice to Molech, God would prepare it for a place of glorious triumph. Their sins would be changed to something that is valuable and something that will be in every way a miracle of God's transforming power of a repentant person. Can God change the most vilest of hearts? We were learning on Monday night from the book of Ezekiel, the men were chapter 23. One of those sections in the Bible that weren't allowed to be read publicly in a Jewish temple. There's several chapters like that, Ezekiel chapter 16, Ezekiel chapter 23, were not um, supposed to be read in a public setting because it would offend people. The graphic nature of the language in those chapters describing the depravity of sin in such vile terms, we don't like to think of sin like that. We, we, we call it white lies or oops or my bad. But in reality, when you read the scriptures, what does it say about sin? Sin separates you from God. The sin causes you to fall. It is death itself. It is a whitewashed tomb within which there is depravity and a falling of the heart itself. God can change those things into his very righteousness. Thank God for that. Chapter 31, the fifth of the woes. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek uh, the Lord. You see, now after the political leaders, they're looking to the military leaders. They're looking to that technological advantage of the day. The chariots, the horses, those things that would give them an edge in the battle, maybe make them swifter or more powerful. And God is going to bring those down as well. Verse 2, yet he also is wise and will bring disaster and will not call back his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of those who work iniquity. Now the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, both he who helps will fall and he who helped will fall down. They all will perish together. What is God saying? Repeating from the previous chapter, what will happen to that military might that you're trying to put your trust in? Will it save you? No, it will not. 
For thus the Lord has spoken to me as a lion roars and a young lion over his prey. When a multitude of shepherds is summoned against him, he will not be afraid of their voice nor be disturbed by their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight from Mount Zion and for its heels like birds flying about. So will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending he will also deliver it. Passing over he will Preserve it. Have you ever watched a nature show about lions? What happens when that lion roars? Roar! Literally heard for miles. What happens to every single animal on the savannah? They run, they prick up their ears, and they start running away. What is that little lion doing? Chewing on the tail, biting the ears. Playing on its dad's back. Same roar, same lion. Different response. Why? Because everything else is food. Except for that little lion who's trusting in its dad. Who knows the power of his dad. His dad's going to hunt for him. His dad's going to bring him back food. His dad's going to protect him. Same lion different response why and it's the same thing with god himself see god is going to protect his people god is going to protect israel god is going to cause about a deliverance and a perseverance as it says in the last two phrases of verse five Return to him against whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted. For in that day, every man shall throw away his idols of silver and his idols of gold. Sin, which your own hands have made for yourselves. What is he describing those collectibles? What is he describing those silver and gold? What is he describing those things that you just put up on a mantle? What is he describing it as? Anything that we put before God, what is it called? It may look nice. But what is it called if we put it before God? Sin. Very clearly put in this. In fact, put one of these verses on your refrigerator. Boom, right there. It's sin, right? Anything I put before God is an idol. Verse 8, then Assyria shall fall by a sword, not of man, and a sword not of mankind shall devour him. But he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall become forced labor. He shall cross over to a stronghold for fear, and his princes shall be afraid of the banner, says the Lord, whose fire is in Zion, and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. You see, God will stand up for Jerusalem. God will stand up for Judah, not her allies. What will happen to her allies? They're going to run. They're going to turn tail. And run. Who is the one that stands up for his people? It's God. You see, during this time, there's going to be a transition. At this time, the Assyrians are a world power. They've already conquered many of the surrounding nations around Judah. They've already take, taken Israel, Samaria itself. They've scattered the northern ten tribes. They have their eyes set on Jerusalem itself, the jewel of the southern kingdom of Judah. God's going to bring about an overthrow within the Assyrian Empire. And the Babylonians, those that were under subjugation of Assyria, will become the next powerhouse of the age. 
chapter 32, verse 1, Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes will rule with justice. A man will be as a hiding place from the wind and a cover from the tempest, as a rivers of water in a dry place, as a shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Where have you heard those phrases before? Isn't this amazing how these little obscure chapters in the middle of the book of Isaiah, they speak so profoundly of who Jesus Christ is. Who is the one, the only one, by the way, that can reign in righteousness? Who is the only one who can bring about justice? It comes in the incarnation of God himself throughout the book of Isaiah. The eyes of those who will see will not be dim, and the ears of those who will hear will listen. And the, also the heart of a rash will understand knowledge, and the no tongue of the stammerers will be ready to speak plainly. Referring all the way back to Moses himself, that guy who said, I can't speak. I'm not good at speaking. I'm not very good at these things. Why are you choosing me to be your leader? What did God say to Moses himself? I will be next to you. I will be your strength. I will give you the words to say to the king of Egypt. Verse 5, the foolish person will no longer be called generous nor the miser said to be bountiful. For the foolish person will speak foolishness and his heart will work iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error against the Lord, to keep the hungry unsatisfied. And he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. Also the schemes of the schemer are evil. He devises these wicked plans to destroy the poor with lying words, even when the needy speaks justice. But a generous man devises generous things and by generosity he shall stand all these verses have these multiple meanings these veiled hidden phrases within them what is the conclusion three times mentioned in verse eight there generosity generous generous generosity it's an oxymoron literally when i give away things god's gonna bless me how can that be that doesn't make sense how can that ever be when i give away something how am i gonna get that thing back what does god do he's even more generous i knew this person up in Dachabee. he was fairly wealthy he was a, just a, a ditch digger and he always said that you know, uh, I, I love being generous because I, I have a shovel and I shovel, but God has a bigger shovel. And he keeps giving me more. And I keep giving it away. Verse 9, rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech in a year of some days you will be troubled you complacent woman, for vintage will fail and gathering will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Be troubled, you complacent ones. Strip yourselves, make yourself bare and gird sackcloth on your waist. Three times this one word complacent is repeated. 
What is the worst sin that we can ever fall into? Complacency. It is a grave with the ends dug out. It's a rut. It's the traditions. It's the same thing that we do every single time we go to church. We sing. We sit down. We listen to a pastor. We shake hands and then we leave, right? I'm comfortable in our sin. I'm complacent in my iniquity. I'll just sit here and listen to a sermon and be absolved of all my sins. What does God want instead? He wants us to get up off our rear ends. He wants us to be challenged. As it says in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 12, and it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the people who are settled in complacency, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. It's the kesara, sara. What will be, will be, right? It'll just happen. It's okay. It'll all just work out. No. What does God want? He wants us to be active. He wants us to be on the offensive. It's a feeling of contented self-satisfaction when I say to myself, I'm comfortable, I'm complacent. I'll just stay in the status quo. But unfortunately, we are unaware of the upcoming trouble. You see, we call ourselves Christians, but complacency kills the spiritual fervor, and it drives that God gives us to the combat the evil forces of the world. It kills our spiritual fervor. Instead, we should be Christians that use their power rather than sit on the sidelines. It's the person that sits on the couch at home and yells at the TV and says, you did it all wrong to the gymnast who's out there working or, or the runner who's out there running or the swimmer that's out there swimming. You should have done it better than that. Why didn't you just reach out quicker, right? While we're sitting on our couches eating our whatever snacks. That's complacency. Rather than being up and working and serving, thank God for the servants in this church. I get to see them and they are amazing. You see, we're Christians who don't know how to use our power. Unfortunately, it's happening all around us. Verse 12, we'll finish this chapter. People shall mourn upon their breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine. On the land of my people will come up thorns and briars. Yes, on all the happy homes in the joyous city, because the palaces will be forsaken and the bustling city will be deserted. The forts and the towers will become lairs forever. A joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. What happens when you're complacent? You become lazy, and what happens to the dwellings that you live in, the homes that you live in? <clears throat> I, I unfortunately have the, the privilege, and I say this tongue-in-cheek sarcastically, of going to people's houses that are in need. 
And you walk into their house and you can't even go anywhere because it's just filled with stuff. And you ask them, well, have you tried to clean? Maybe just start with this section and start cleaning. And they say, well, I, I don't have the time or, or I can't do that or, you know, I, I'm waiting for someone to help me. How did that all start from the beginning anyway? It started with complacency. It started with laziness. It started with letting the dwellings that we have fall apart. And then what happens? And, and here it describes wild donkeys and, you know, all the, the beasts of the field. And said, what do we have in our homes, unfortunately, when we allow things to be cluttered? <clears throat> yeah, roaches and rats and all those kind of things, right? Continues on, verse 15, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is counted as a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. The work of righteousness will be a peace. And the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. You see, assurance is active. And complacency is passive. Assurance knows whom you seek. Complacency gives up seeking altogether. I had the privilege of doing my dad's funeral just this last Saturday. And one of the songs we sang was Blessed Assurance. My, I knew where my dad was going. He knew where he was going. We all knew where he was going. Those of you that got to attend the memorial knew where he was going. But he didn't sit around on his rear end. He knew he was actively involved in his salvation. Last three verses, my people will dwell in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Though hail comes down on the forest, and the city is brought low in humiliation, blessed are you who sow beside all waters, who send out freely the feet to the ox and the donkey. Assurance, righteousness is forever and it's active. In fact, what does the scriptures describe peace as? The peace of God. What is the peace of God described as? Beyond all human understanding. Thank God for his peace. Thank God for his assurance. Thank God that he wakes us up. And hopefully today you've been woken up. Hopefully today you won't leave this place the same way you entered Maybe God pricked your heart. Maybe, you know, you read these three chapters that we read and, you know, I, I, you know, I can't remember it all, you know, but, but you could remember a verse. You could remember a part of a section. You remember one of the things that we talked about, about assurance or never going back to Egypt or the idols, those things that bring us down, that destroy our relationship with God. And so tonight, I pray that the Holy Spirit would prick our hearts and wake us up out of our complacency. Dear Father, we thank you so much for the privilege that we have to come before you. And it seemed like it's only been five minutes. We just barely started and it's already eight o'clock. Lord, I thank you that your word is active 
I, I thank you that your word is living, that even though it was written some 2,700 years ago, it is still just as relevant for today. We all have our Egypts. We all have our, our complacency. We all have our, our times when we put those idols before you, those shiny things that just sit and do nothing in our lives. They just suck our time. They just suck our resources. They just suck our health and who we are. Lord, please forgive us. Wake us up. Give us your real peace. Give us your real power. Give us your real strength. Give us your real assurance and help us to trust in you, the Holy One, rather than the things that have um, the promises that will fail and that will eventually just run away. Lord, we thank you for being here and we ask that you use us for your glory this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you.